HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased to have Rick Moonen on on the show. Rick is a celebrated seafood chef and early champion of sustainable fishing practices. He's known as the godfather of sustainability. He is the chef owner of RM Seafood and R Bar Cafe at Mandela, Mandela Bay in Las Vegas. And he's also the author of Fish Without a Doubt, The Cook's Essential Companion. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> so glad to have you today. Um, it's I, I think that you are the first chef that I uh, have interviewed. I think that is right. So thrilled to be uh, diversifying. <laughs> very honored. Thank you. <laughs> um, absolutely. So tell me, I want to ask a few questions kind of about chef life before we get into some of the more um, policy-oriented uh, conversations. And I want to know how, when and how did you decide to start chefing? Oh, boy. Well, as a youngster growing up, I'm one of seven children, right in the center number four. I was and still am kind of hyperactive. My high energy is, is kind of obvious and contagious. Well, my mom wasn't too comfortable with that. She'd come home and go into the kitchen and start working. I'd be somewhere else. She dragged me in the kitchen at a young age, not for any purpose other than to keep an eye on me, just to give me tasks. And, um, you know, I had a very curious mind, very science and math were like my, my strengths, you know, English and history, not as much science and math, loathed 
things, how things worked. And so as I was in the kitchen doing stuff for my mom and I got to taste it, things changed before my eyes and it intrigued me. And uh, later on in life, as I'm trying to decide, you know, as a 19-year-old, what am I going to do with my life, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm in college now. I'm taking general you know, uh, uh, classes, etc. So I decided to become a dietitian. I thought that'd be really cool. You know, science, math, food, boom, mm-hmm. seemed to make sense. And my uncle got me um, a brochure, a catalog to the Culinary Institute of America. And this is in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I was like, looked at this, this silly little book. It was a little white, pa- you know, it's a pamphlet almost, you know, compared to today. You know, and I looked through it and I see these weird people with hats on, funny hats, and all this, you know, and I threw it to the side. And a couple months later, for whatever reason, I I gave it a little more thought and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. I'm going to still be a dietitian, but I'm going to get a culinary background. Yeah. Well, I went to I went to the CIA and fell in love with it, and my life changed right then, right there. Uh, never looked back. Love because of the multiplicities of things that are going on simultaneously in the kitchen mm-hmm. for an ADD type mindset. Yeah. It is just super exciting. You know, you, if you can get control of all of the moving parts of a of a busy service during a, you know, you know, during lunch or dinner, it doesn't matter. Yeah. You are in your zone. You have to be I, I learned that really quickly, and that's really how I became. Yeah. Um, so I just, whatever happened to the dietitian aspirations, I'm, I'm assuming that ended. No, that, that faded away. I was so glad that I'm not sitting at a desk doing, you know, yeah. menus and, and writing out, you know, menus for people of need, you know, and, and I'm still doing that actually on oh, certain yeah. levels, you know, as a chef, the role has changed and evolved and evolved. I mean, the chef's um, knowledge of food. When I went to the Culinary Institute of America, didn't even have a class on seafood. Didn't I, I did not take a class on seafood when I went to the CIA, and on a lot of things. You know, um, there would be a lot of diets that would come up in my career. You know, the Atkins diet and this diet and that diet, and customers, you know, our guests that were coming to our restaurants wanted to know more about the the, the food and how it was caught because they heard that you know the tuna that might be on their plate could be killing dolphins and so so you think that the customers have kind of helped drive uh you know desire to learn more about how the food is prepared and transparency in terms of where it's come from exactly you needed as a chef to know the person that was forming your food or the or the or the the fishermen that's catching your food and how they're how they're uh that what, what gear they're using because they could be doing habitat destruction, et cetera, et cetera. So there was so many facets, and it wasn't like a course. It was a lifetime. So this is that's why now my friends and people call me called the godfather of sustainability because I was talking about, you know, give swordfish a break, you know, in the 90s. And I was talking about caviar mTOR and, you know, because of the Caspian Sea and, and what's, you know, and, People in my industry, some people are like, oh, great, thumbs up, walk away, go, Jesus, what the hell, man, you know? My life's complicated enough. Why do you, you know, want to bring up this up to me? Because, you know, it's available for my purveyor. It must be okay. Well, the regulatory agencies and all the other moving parts of of making sure this ecosystem is in balance um, weren't doing their jobs as well as they could. And we needed to know as chefs, as gatekeepers, as influencers, we needed to make sure that we had the information and understood it. It was our responsibility. But for many, many years, it wasn't um, as prominent, prevalent. So why do you think that is, though? I mean, because I am very curious about this connection between food policy and chefs and 
like you said, I think that it's becoming, there's becoming a much stronger connection, certainly with the work that you've done, um, mm-hmm. which includes anti-hunger work. I also think of chefs like Tom Colicchio, who's you yeah. know, very involved in, in uh, policy and supporting legislators who prioritize mm-hmm. food policy. So what is the, the connection like? I mean, because like restaurants operated on a notoriously thin margin. And so sometimes, um, you know, these issues in terms of sustainability and transparency are fall by the wayside. So when and why do you think that shift um, started to happen? I think it started as a natural shift, to be perfectly honest with you. It was um, there. You go. I went through a couple of different eras many different areas in my 40 years. There's a lot of things that come and go, trends and focuses in cuisines. You know, there was a, the, the Nouvelle Cuisine for a while there, which was smaller portions, mm-hmm. you know, poached. I don't like that. Grilled. Everything was healthier. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and this was the Trois Gros Brothers, you know, where we're generating this new style and, and, and Joyce Blanc and all these. It was French. It was plain, straight up. French was driving the uh, cuisine of the world, you know, through the cuisine légère, which is light cuisine to heavy to whatever, whatever there was going on in France at the time was the way everybody else was following. You know, I learned from Jacques Pepin, La Technique. I learned from uh, La Côte de Basque. I learned, you know, that's, that's all there was when I graduated culinary school. So to get to your point, to get to your question, later on, as we went through different diets and different cuisines, there was much more of a, a, uh, cross-cultural um, um, experimental time where we started putting in Asian cuisine and then there was Italian and French and German and, and, and all the different influences of the world started to cross-culturalize them. I took a, a Indo, you know, a, a Chino-Latino and um, mixed it with a, with a, uh, you know, a German. Who knows? It could be anything. And then in order to evolve into the next level of uh, doing something different, the ingredients on the plate started to have stories. It went from, you know, veal piccata. Everybody knew what veal piccata was. That's a piece of veal permeated up, lightly floured, sautéed, finished with lemon and, and all that. Mm-hmm. You knew that. You knew what, a, what an omelet princess was. That meant, and this is classic. It meant that it had asparagus in it. But now when you start highlighting and, 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 and making the hero out of the ingredients on the plate, you started to get descriptive dishes. The... Um, um, Day boat, diver's scallop, hand-harvested sea scallop from Captain George of Maine, seared on, you know, so then, then all of a sudden it wasn't the yeah. to understand what it was. It was talking about the food. And that was the beginning of the tipping point of later to happen years and years and years later of the realization it's, it is about the, the food. You know, and if anybody that's the, the been product. paying attention to flavor and texture yeah. for the amount of time that I have can see that the strawberry is no longer a strawberry. We've been hoodwinked by um, industry to think that a Driscoll is a strawberry. <laughs> it's because you forgot. You forgot how great a strawberry was. You forgot how great a peach was. You forgot how, because they, they pick them now and they're hard as a rock. Because now you can get a better yield. It's all about business. We became the result of of, of a great business that um, lied to us for many, many, many decades to tell us that this is more convenient, it's better for you, and it's it's great. It's all great. Well, we know the Dust Bowl and everything we've done to our our our, our, uh, our land. We've I, I, not many people know what's happened to the sea. I've been screaming about it because the ocean always looks clean. 
Well, and nice let's and shiny on top, but yeah. below is a disaster. And let's talk about you that. Know? So I want to know why you decided to focus on fish in particular, because you could have, you know, I mean, you could have kind of gotten on board with the organic movement in, in the early 90s or uh, reduced meat consumption. So why fish? I was so detested. I was so um, destined to uh, do what I do because I ended up, uh, I was at the Water Club, beautiful restaurant until 1994, actually. Mm -hmm. 88 to 94, I ran an $11 to $12 million restaurant on the East River in New York City. Unbelievable. I mean, just crank it out. And, you know, and I went in there knowing that, you know, there was no way I was going to cut corns. We're going to make stock from bones. We're going to make everything. We're not going to buy anything pre-fat, pre-nothing. Yeah. So we go in there with all this integrity and piss and vinegar, you know, and then I left because of another opportunity because, I, you know, I reached my potential there. I wanted to move on. Mm -hmm. And I became a partner at Oceana. Oceana, 1994. Did I know this was going to happen? No. Food Network started in 94. Everything happened in 94. I'm in midtown Manhattan, 54th Street and Madison Avenue at a brownstone that is frequented and busy, run by, partnered with, you know, Paul McLaughlin, who was one of the original captains of La Bernadette. So I got to work with these people. I'm just this, you know, American chef, has, has a pedigree, has some years and, you know, and some articles and reviews under his belt. And now I'm at Oceana and we put it on the map and that's where I was typecasted. And that's how it really happened. Because, you know, I got to Into have seafood. the privilege of working at the same time that La Bernadette was just changing the way people ate seafood. They started eating. Gilbert Lacoste was telling you to, you can eat salmon, rare. You can eat, I mean, medium rare. You can eat tuna, rare. And then, you know, the world was like, <gasps> You should. You should amazing. eat salmon and tuna, rare. <laughs> well, you or medium know that rare. Prior to 1994, yeah. food was really. Seafood was casseroles. And yeah. Look up, look, try to find some really good solid seafood books other than fish without a doubt. Mine, but I'm talking about previous <laughs> pre pre 1990s. It's very difficult. You know, I'm saying you'll get a good dish, but you're not going to get the cuisine that we're eating today. The way seafood has been trans transported into something that people have a, a, a better understanding of. Although United States consumer mostly scared of seafood will eat uh, will get their seafood fix in a restaurant rather than cook it at home still i think we're, we're moving more towards that hopefully with the efforts that and, and the policy changes and the times that i've been into washington for policy changes etc um people are starting to ask more questions and know more about their food um, so about that, so, you know, meat consumption, obviously Americans eat way, way more meat than fish, like you just said, and, and there are certain, there are major environmental repercussions of doing so. Um, mm -hmm. are you, are you a big proponent of in, encouraging people to eat more fish because there are issues in the fish industry also with overfishing and, you know, I mean, you know better than well, I, but I'm, I'm encouraging people to eat more fish because a, it's very good for you. Mm -hmm. B, it, it's more energy efficient a fish to grow the growth of a fish because they're in a buoyant environment. They don't have to expend so much energy, you know, so there's a better transfer of natural, um, you know, nutrients available on our planet for seafood, you know, and, and, and that's just the truth. Um, I spent yesterday cooking three beautiful ribs of St. Louis pork, you know, so in my backyard. It you is know, Memorial I eat, Day. I eat meat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, so, I mean, I just love cuisine and love food. Seafood is a, uh, always been very, well, it's intriguing because I got involved in it. And, and it's just, it's my life story now, you know. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've, I've been just, 
and as you as you piece the parts of my life together from the beginning to the middle to now, still, I've been very fortunate to be in the right places at the right times. You know, a great restaurant in Midtown Manhattan when Food Network starts. Wow. And then, and then so we got three stars from the New York Times. La Bernadette got four. We were leading and changing the way people ate seafood. Whew. That's awesome. You know, and... Um, but do you think that people should are you are you encouraging of having people eat more fish even though overfishing is a big problem? Well, we're going to go into this discussion, I'm sure. It's aquaculture. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Yeah. My opinion of aquaculture and I left the water club. I remember having this conversation with Sam Curran. And wait, just Ooh. one one second. Sorry to interrupt you. I just want to for our listeners let, you know, remind them aqua, aquaculture is basically fish farming, right? So it's That's it's exactly right. Yeah. Breeding, yeah, rearing, just, breeding um, plants and animals in all top types of water environments. Sorry. Yeah, from egg from egg to plate, you know, mm-hmm. you know, but they're they're farming them, and and there was a lot of issues when it's for aquaculture is fairly new. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's it's only a couple of decades, um, you know, in, in in the developmental stages. You know, it had its its formative years over the last two and a half decades. So that being said, they made a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. They didn't know about it, but they knew there was a need for it. There was a gold rush run for everybody making uh, let's let's freeze fish. <gasps> yeah, we're going to make a killing. Right, and and because they're doing it in Norway, well, I'm talking pretty much salmon started the way, and a lot of other species as well. I mean, shellfish, et cetera, et cetera. That's another um, category of aquaculture, and that's great for the environment. And as blanket as a blanket statement, eat mm-hmm. as many mussels, clams, and oysters as you possibly can to clean in the ocean. Yeah. But when it comes to fin fish, they made a lot of mistakes. They over they over uh, you know um, popularized no, the, the population of the fish in a given area uh, open that pen out in the ocean stressed out the fish. So I mean, and there's the list goes on with aquaculture mistakes from using. Um, so now they stressed out the interior population of fish they were growing, and when you stress out. Um, any animal, they, they get sick. You, know, you need antibiotics. You need, oh, and then there's sea lice that occur naturally. But this is a smorgasbord of fish. You've got them captured. So sea lice are living well beyond their, their level of population and health levels that they would normally live because of this, you know, this, this, this situation going on. This and escapes. You know, they break through. And then all of a sudden these, these farmed fish that were, uh, were now competing for food, that the fish that live in that area need to live normally. So now there's a there's a there's a there's a buying for uh, natural uh, resources for uh, for all the ecosystem. So because it, there's it, so it, much overcrowding, it was met with a lot of um, um, questioning and and, and 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 resistance. I was one of those people that resisted farm raised Atlantic salmon in the Pacific. You know, I didn't think it was right. I felt as though it was destroying um, the wild populations of salmon that still existed there. We'd already wiped out an Atlantic salmon population on the East Coast in the Atlantic because of a multitude of reasons. That was nice of us. (laughs) What's that? I said that was nice of us. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't want to see the same thing happen on the West Coast. So I was for ten years. I didn't serve wild. I didn't serve uh, farmers Atlantic salmon until they started to do a much, much, much better job. Today, aquaculture and it was a lot of pressure. Um, you know, Seafood Watch. You know, it was a program. It's an assessment. You know, the gold standard for assessment from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and they put out these little uh, guides for years, millions and millions of them, and messaging from chefs and people in the industry that you know you, you need to uh, adhere. To a better and um, more knowledgeable, uh, you know, um, uh, sourcing of the food that you consume for many, many reasons, and one of them was farm-raised Atlantic salmon was terrible. It was terrible for the environment for so many reasons, and um, 
big companies started to make investments and change, like True North Salmon, which I'm brand I'm a brand ambassador for now. But for a full year, they asked if I would consider supporting them as a brand ambassador. And I said, no way. You know, why? You know, and they started telling me, well, we've done this, this, this. What about that? And they, they'd answer this question. I go, oh, okay, how about this? You know, how about use of copper and all these different reasons that there was concerns on aquaculture. And they really had satisfied a lot, um, 90 some odd percent. I'm like, you know what? We're a growing population from this this planet. I took a, it was a day of reflection, you know, from being a, a staunch, you know, uh, resistor to uh, purchasing and, and supporting Atlantic salmon farm raised to hmm, 7 billion and 9 billion. These small little wonderful solutions that we come up with, you know. I think everything should be organic from a small farm, you know, raised. Yeah, that'd be great. You're not gonna you're not gonna do that on the size planet we have for nine billion people that are coming into twenty fifty. You need large scale solutions. So aquaculture, large scale solutions doing a much better job. Let's recognize the people that are doing a much better job. So that everyone else that's not maybe up to that level of doing a better job says good business model. We should follow. Mm-hmm. And that's how you change and you create sustainability. That's how the environment realizes a shift in the greedy way which we, we, we try to control food. So when you talk about aquaculture, are you, especially, you know, for example, with salmon, are you talking about um, aquaculture that happens in the oceans or is there also, um, you know, do you have any exposure or do you buy aquaculture fish raised on land? Okay. Excellent questions. In well, the beginning <laughs> with aquaculture, I thought, hmm, because the problems... Mm, Eight out of ten of the problems occurred because we were using the ocean. It was open net tents from escapes to the interaction of what's happening in the natural environment with product, with, um, you know, um, the byproduct of a lot of fish in a small area that can't really swim around, meaning the the effluent, you know, it's a beautiful little um, recipe of uh, fish poop, food that wasn't consumed, and dead fish, you know, and it's this suffocating blanket of death on the environment. So all of those things... What they would do is they would allow a population of fish to live in a certain area, and then it would go dormant. They would let it go fallow for a year to allow the environment to re, 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 uh, recover. So now aquaculture being done so much better, I thought everything needed to be um, in recirculating tanks on land. That was my mentality in the beginning. And, and, and it, was, it, it was sound because most of the problems would be eliminated if you just did it on land. You know, have salt water. We're smart enough. Oh, it's not energy efficient. Well, get solar. You know, I mean, I, already, mm-hmm. I, I had an answer for everything. And then I realized little by little that we just don't have enough uh, resources to build an aquaculture of strength to feed the planet and maintain the health of our environment. So back to the ocean, let's just do it better. There's a lot of ocean. And so um, I support both aquaculture um, um, on a recirculating um, tank system, such as um, Arctic char, you know, fantastic. Certain certain types of uh, barramundi, which is a fish from Australia, farm-raised in um, you know, non-coastal areas, you know, so it's all, um, in, you know, in, uh, on land, so to speak. So I support both. There's a limitation to the amount in which you're going to be able to do efficiently on land. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's still a ways to go to learn better and better means to, um, to uh, farm raise or create aquaculture products. And uh, just got to 
keep everybody honest, and that's the hard part, keeping everybody honest in a business where you're selling the most perishable inventory in the world. It's like a game of hot potato. You just got to get rid of it. I got some fish. Get rid of it. Hmm. Oh, it's got two minutes. You know, hmm. you know, it's two days shelf life, really, for, for the health and, well, maybe a little bit longer. But by the time you get it in your hands, you know, it's gone through chains and airplanes and styrofoam boxes and travels. And even if it's local, you still have a short um, shelf life on that. And that's what scares people. You're like, oh, if you got a hamburger in your refrigerator and you didn't cook it today, you cook it tomorrow. You now, seafood's different. So, very unique um, topic ocean, oceanic pro- food products. I love it. It's been my life and it will continue to be. Um, we're going to take a really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll be continuing our conversation about seafood and sustainability. Stay tuned. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I am talking with Chef Rick Moonen. What um, types of fish do you recommend for our consumers uh, to eat more of and to eat less of? Okay. Well, all right. For what reasons? Um, For environmental reasons, that's going to be one answer. And then it's going to morph into health concerns because, you know, methylmercury, it's not really that great for you. It's not great for your, you know, if you're a, a mother uh, pregnant, you're, you know, you're not going to allow your fetus to develop correctly. And methylmercury is an issue. You know, I was listening to NPR yesterday about coal in a town in the U.S. And coal, coal burning uh, energy is, is very, has spewed large amounts of methylmercury into our environment, ended up in the oceans. It's a smaller fish it's in very trace amounts, but there are fish that eat voraciously small fish, and then so it, it, it gets to concentrate in the system. So that's health reasons. So you want to stay away from the big guys. The ones that we love so much as, as the, you know, the top of the food chain, the human being wants big fish. I want swordfish. I want tuna. I want all the bluefin I can get in my mouth because it's so fatty and so delicious. What about oh, halibut? What are like sea bass or any other, any other, uh, specific? Um, there are other fish as far as health reasons that are high in mercury. Not my area of expertise, to be perfectly honest with you. I have to look it up sometimes, mm-hmm. especially when I have, um, a new fish, but, I have a, a, a blanket solution. Eat lower on the food chain. Eat the smaller fish. They're fat, They're packed with, with the omega-3s. They're absolutely delicious. Let the chefs cook them for you, but you have to buy them because we can't inventory them if you don't buy them. Right. So you, you lose it. You know, you're like, I want to buy sardines. They're so beautiful. I saw them at the market. Oh, my God, what I can do with them. Well, if you don't take them and preserve them that minute, 
you know, put them in vinegar or salt or something that's going to hold them their their freshness. You're going to give it to the employees in two days, or you're just going to throw them out. And now that's not a good business. You don't want to do that. So lower on the food chain, you know. Or there are there are some fish that we need to make sexier and make them royal mentally. Because I mean they're they're so good for you, you know. Like Arctic what? char that yeah. I mentioned before, farmed barramundi yeah. I mentioned as well. Striped bass, if it's a hook and line or or farmed. Okay, the farmed is more of a hybrid hybrid fish. Both great fish. U.S. catfish, U.S. farm raised fish are good, generally speaking, you know. And then don't don't be afraid of oysters, clams, and mussels. Fantastic, right. you know. Spiny lobster from Mexico, good stuff. Farm scallops, shrimp, sole, tilapia, trout, tuna. Um, certain kinds of tuna are okay. Skipjack and albacore because they're troll caught. And, and and these, you know, oh my God, how am I going to? That's so daunting. How am I going to know all that? Put an app, put an app on your phone. Like you got already have fifty of them on your phone. Put one more called Seafood Watch. Okay. Click on it and learn. You know, and and be honest with you, it changes. You know, there's always this um, evolution of, of of species that are. Trying to become more popular, but there's problems with their with their uh, you know their strength of their population for environmental reasons. Could be natural, could be an oil spill in the Gulf. Okay, let's stay away from go you know red snapper for a while. They're back. Let's let's support red snapper. It's local. It's American. I mean, over ninety percent of what we consume in the United States comes from another country. Yes, <laughs> yes, that is such an important point, and most people don't realize that, especially with seafood. Seafood isn't yep. uh, like the vast majority of seafood, specifically as a category, is imported, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's no reason for it. We have such vast coastlines and beautiful um, environments that we should be, um, and we are. We're getting better, but we need to be able to regulate ourselves a little bit better when it comes to certain fisheries. We've done a great job in Alaska. What do you mean by regulating much. in this in this situation? I know that you've testified um, on the Hill quite a bit. I mean, ha, mm-hmm. have it been has that been about some of these issues? Like, what are some of the regulations that you would like to see more of? Well, okay, there's something called catch shares. Okay, catch shares means the fishermen that have lived in an, in, in a fishery, an indigenous an area, right? Where there's fish, they're either going out and they're catching catching fish. Well, normally what goes on is um, NOAA, our you know government agency, goes out and says, "Okay, we're going to find out how how um, how healthy this this population of fish is this year." So they send out some people that take some um, some you know data, and they come back and go, "Okay, we're going to set the limit of X fish, let's say red snapper. We're going to set the limit of red snapper this year at 20 tons." You know, which sounds like a lot of fish. It's not when you're fishermen trying to make a living off of, you know, the the, the the amount of time that the government's going to tell you it's okay to catch those 20 tons. They tell you when you can catch them, how much you can catch, and when to stop. So, I mean, there could be a season of red snapper where it's like the first week in July, and we'll let you know after a week how, how we're doing. Oh, you might have hit the limit, et cetera, et cetera. What that does, when the government is assessing the amount that should be caught for a, for a season, and they're telling you when the fishermen can go out for them. What happens is it turns into a derby. The fishermen go out. They have to make enough money to survive for the next six months on this red snapper catch because that's the way it's always been. So now they go out and they slaughter these fish. It doesn't matter how they're catching them. They can't. 
because they have such a narrow um, opportunity to go out and catch the fish. So the fish aren't being properly uh, taken care of, so I end up with a fish that's been beat up a little bit yeah. or less than it could be. Um, it, it could be bad weather, and the fishermen have to still go out um, fishing because the days that they've been allotted are so short. And anyway, when the government tries to regulate the fisheries so tightly where they, oh, we're in charge, well, they don't know what they're doing. Because if you just let it go, say, look, guys, you got 20 tons. You catch it when you want. You guys own this fishery. You've been there. You, George, your family's always caught 5% of the catch. You own 5%. You own. So now now the fishermen themselves own the fishery. Now they find out when there's supply and demand. I need red snapper, you know, throughout, you know, for three months of the year, for instance. And I'm going to pay a premium for really good quality. Now they can handle the fish properly. They're not endangering their own lives if the weather's not good. It's not a derby. The price, they can, they can get more for it because it's not the supply and demand glut. You know, the government, Noah said, you go on one, you go uh, one week in July, well, the price is going to be low because that's the, that's the week that, you know, you got the corn seasons out or whatever, you know, and everything gets lower. So, catch shares. I, uh, there's a the problem with catch shares. Why, Rick? That just makes so much sense. That's what they did in Alaska, and that's why one of the reasons that Alaskan fisheries are so strong, because they, they, the, the fishermen want to take care of their environment. But if you tell them they've got a week uh, to make the, their, their cut, well, the environment is not the primary uh, concern of the fishermen. Can't blame them. So that's, so they're going to use the nastiest, um, fastest, and easiest way to catch the fish to, as far as gear. You know, which doesn't necessarily take very good care of the environment. It could be dragging along the bottom, ripping, shredding so, the the, uh, the very yeah. um, environment that the fish need to survive. Anyway, so it's so, so it's basically like to, a, uh, a so well, sorry to, sorry to interrupt. It's basically like a happy medium, right? So so regulations have a very important place um, in protecting our environment, you know, and, and yep. the fish. But sometimes, like a lot of regulations, well-intentioned, um, maybe not as uh, easier, some issues with when it's actually been implemented. And, and you are pointing out one in particular, one issue in particular, and how, yeah. and how well, the regulation can be improved. Exactly. I mean, and one of the problems that it's unforeseen is there's, there's commercial fishing. And there's recreational fishing. Recreational fishing, there's a lot of money in there, a lot of money. So if you're a small fishing community and you get a uh, for two straight three months or four months of the year, everybody's coming and filling the hotels and going to the restaurants and bringing their and filling gas in their boats and going fishing. There's a lot of money there to be made. So you know, commercial fishers uh, fisheries are are pain in the neck to the recreational fisheries. So. You know, and on it goes. Well, so I had, I went to, to be done um, with, what's to, to be done uh, from Washington. That? Well, luckily, I mean, I'm, I'm in Nevada, I'm in Las Vegas. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Senate, that. <laughs> Senator, look, the Senator Majority Leader, Harry Reid, you know, I got to go straight to his office and say, Harry, you know, we got to support <laughs> this catch share thing. And he goes, okay, Rick, because I'm a business owner and, you know, in the, you know, uh, state in which he supports where he's from. So that was great. You know, and that's how politics, politics, um, Work sometimes, you know, and that's that's very cool because you get the ear of those that are that are real uh, regulatory, um, you know, policymakers. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Nevada. You um, worked in New York City for a lot of years, and then you decided to mm-hmm. move to Las Vegas, which. 
um, in and of itself is not a very sustainable place, yet you have right. a big focus on sustainability in terms of the food you serve. So I'm wondering how you kind of, why Las Vegas um, in particular, and then how you continue to maintain your commitment to um, you know, responsible sourcing in the middle of the desert. Great questions. And, and I mean, I was in New York for 25 years of my career and loved it. Got an opportunity in, in uh, Mandalay Bay, saw it as a great business opportunity. And, and you know what? What better place to make a point than, and then in the middle of a, of a city that wasn't supposed to be here in the first place? <laughs> you know, but to put everything in some sort of perspective. That notwithstanding, you know, it's, it's seafood sourcing in Las Vegas. You know, you're an hour uh, plane flight from L.A. You're a four-hour drive from L.A. Wow, that's a long time, isn't it? No, you're in Manhattan. You're a four-hour drive from Long Island if you're trying to get fresh fish from that. Believe me, if you've ever driven the Long Island Expressway in the middle of summer, you oh, know what I'm talking I about. I do. I really do. <laughs> I am very, very so, <laughs> familiar. And we're closer. We're closer to more organic farms from California than uh, L.A. is. You know, if you do a, do a protractor and draw a little circle, boom, there's more organic farms close than to, to, that are in proximity of Las Vegas. Yeah, that's so point. Las Vegas isn't as – it gets demonized because that's the cool part of it. But it's as far as the community, I've seen a lot of changes. And one of the reasons I wanted to be here is because to be a big fish in a small pond, so to – I mean, I, I really – you can really be an influencer. You can have – you can see the changes of your support messaging and, uh, you know, in a community, on a community level. And I love it, you know, because mm-hmm. now there's more um, evolvement in the actual community of Las Vegas in which I'm embedded in. And I love being a part of that. So for all of those reasons, I decided it was a good idea to have a seafood business with a sustainability message in the middle of Sin City. Um, Okay, so we are going to have to wrap up in just one minute. But before we do, I want to get back to something that you have been talking a lot about um, publicly lately. And this is your can to table initiative. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about eating lower on the the food chain, but I want to know what this means to you. Um, And... Yeah, and how you're kind of um, no, it's okay. No, it's it's a modest proposal because it finally dawned on me. I was meeting um, a can of sardines. Uh, the brand was Bella from Portugal. It's family-owned business. These the the sardines are the the, the Boldbaum uh, pilchard, which is a, the the real sardine, firm, delicious, and they handle it and within eight hours. It's smoked and cooked and put in a can, and I opened it up and I ate it. I'm like, it's reminding me of my father. He's from Holland, you know, and all the little cans and jars of herring and seafood and stuff we'd eat, you know? And and you know what? This is the way to get people to eat seafood. It's got shelf life. Here, I can now say, hey, guys, you can put, um, you know, lower on the food chain items on your menu, <clears throat> and it's got a shelf life of six months and a year, you know, in the can. So now you don't have to throw it out, feed it to the employees. There's a solution. <laughs> is it the answer? I don't know. You don't have to but feed it no, to the employees. It's no bigger, uh, you know, caviar. I open up a little jar, pop yeah. the top off, give it to you on a bed of ice. I make little pancakes and some onions and some eggs, and I charge you $100. And that's okay. That's understood. That's cool. Yeah. You opened up a jar. Wait, chef, way to go. Opening that jar, chef. No, that was the sourcing thing. So in the same vein, you can source great it doesn't just have to be sardines. I'm using that as an example. It could be skipjack tuna. It could be mackerel. It could be a multitude of canned, high-quality canned seafood products 
are a solution for me. I'm playing with it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm doing my own can of sardines on my menu where, you know, the garnishes are grilled naan bread and a spicy raita and some yeah, other things. That sounds good. It makes it a little more. It's really good. You get the char on the naan bread, so it almost tastes like the sardines are grilled. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to see how we can break down some ooh barriers. Well, you know? the, the ooh, one thing. I'm going to eat that for. <laughs> and once you have it, you realize. It's really good. So, much, so packed with good stuff. So delicious. Maybe it's going to be a reality. I'm, I'm pushing it, and I hope to see that it actually takes some uh, and even root, some ground. Even though you're, um, I mean, I'm assuming your diners are a little bit more sophisticated, right? Your price point's a little bit higher. So, has there been like an you know initial like resistance, reticence to um, order those dishes, or are you um, just sort of the early experimental phase? It's early experimental. There is resistance <laughs> from my staff. From my my customers, but what I do is I, I do like I did years ago when I went to Spain. I ended up bringing sardine, uh, anchovies back to uh, my menu at, at, at Oceana, Bocaronas. Where everybody knows the white anchovies now, but back then it wasn't. The um, U.S. hadn't heard of it, so I was buying sardines and processing them and then offering them. None were selling. I was I started to give them away to customers that I knew. They loved them. They flipped out. They said to the captain, "This is amazing." So then the captain's got a little bit more of a confidence in their um, in selling it and, it, and it took root. Sometimes you have to get creative. So I'm at the point right now where I'm talking about it, and I, and I have sardines. I end up eating them a lot of times, and we're playing around with them. Hopefully we'll find the right way, and, uh, and then we'll hit a point of realization where sardines becomes cool. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but Rick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking all <laughs> about pleasure. seafood and sustainability. <laughs> okay. We're going to have to wrap it up for today. A big thanks to Rick Moonen for coming on the show. Also want to thank our sponsors, as always, for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzette and show music is by Tim Archer. Thank you to our engineer, Vitor Hirscht. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe. And hey, if you like what you hear, let us know in the comments section. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook as well. And find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. There was nothing-